0: Welcome to Students Over Systems, a new podcast where we talk with the creators, advocates, and beneficiaries of education freedom. I'm your host, Jenny Gentles, Director of the Independent Women's Forum Education Freedom Center, and um, excited to be hosting this new podcast. Before we bring on our guest and delve into our discussion, I just want to lay out our plans for the podcast, which is to explore all the sides of education freedom. And uh, the reason why we feel that this is important to do at this point um, is because many parents no longer trust their residentially assigned public schools. Parents experienced lengthy school closures during the COVID era. They were uh, not listened to when they asked for masks to be taken off of their children and their teachers. And uh, the disastrous remote learning and learning loss crisis that resulted from that is still being um, reckoned with today. Parents felt that the federal emergency spending uh funding was was misspent, misallocated, and um and they're fed up with the refusal of school districts to meet the needs of the of their children. The list goes on: lowered academic standards, classrooms focus on, on woke agenda, discipline out the window, and of uh, insistence an on indoctrination rather than a focus on academic instruction we want to make sure that parents know that their voices are heard and that they do not need to feel hopeless. They don't need to feel stuck. There are options for them rather than just fighting their school district and speaking up at at school board meetings, which is an important first step. They need to be uh, understanding that education freedom is out there. They need to understand what that is, know what their options are, and know how to advocate for education freedom at the state level. So we'll be having this conversation um, each week on Students Over Systems to provide parents and also education entrepreneurs and uh, policymakers with the opportunities to share their stories, share their ideas, and share their vision for K-12 education. All right, so to kick off our podcast today and to kick off those discussions, I'd like to welcome Inez Stepman. She's our... Um, Our guest today and also host of my favorite podcast, High Noon. She's also a senior policy analyst at the Independent Women's Forum, a Lincoln fellow with the Claremont Institute, and a senior contributor to The Federalist. Inez is a gifted writer and a thought-provoking media commentator, and she works on issues related to institutional capture, the definition of sex in law and culture, and relevant to this discussion, she has over a decade of experience in education policy. So welcome to Students Over Systems, Inez. Jenny, I'm so glad to be here.
1: I'm honored to be the uh, the first round here.
0: Well, I wanted to start with you because uh, you are my colleague at Independent Women's Forum. You work with me on education freedom issues, and uh, you are an inspiration for a lot of, of the thinking out there on how to... How to talk about education freedom in a post COVID world. Um, and I, I want to explore first your background in, in the issue. And then let's get to your current thinking around education freedom. So you have a pretty lengthy history, not as long as mine. <laughs> um, but a lengthy history in advocating for school choice, uh, primarily at the, at the state level. Can you tell us a little bit about your previous roles at ALEC and some of the work that you've done at IWF around school choice?
1: Sure. Um, I got into uh, education policy, I think, through something that's really, really relevant today. But as I'm sure you remember back then, Ginny um, was not seen as the natural reason um, back, let's say, 10 or 12 years ago when I first started doing education advocacy work. Um, I I really got into this because I was concerned about, um, about civics, about the fact that so many of my generation seemed not to know. And uh, worse, as as Reagan famously said, right, they knew so much that isn't so uh, about this country, uh, about our constitution, about... uh, the culture of this country that has actually allowed us to, to be incredibly prosperous, to be um, incredibly free uh, by, by the standards of the history of the world. So that, that's actually why I kind of got interested in education as a policy area to begin with and had the opportunity to intern uh, with the great Lindsay Burke over at Heritage Foundation uh, a gazillion years ago. Um, and that's kind of how I got into the, the policy aspect of it. So I actually came to school choice because of a content issue right? Um, because I was concerned about what students were or weren't learning, what my future voting uh, citizens were learning and not learning um, in the classroom, which I think is, is so relevant today, seems relevant today. But at the time, that was kind of a tangential issue, right? It was it was about Milton Friedman's arguments for introducing competition uh, into the school system uh, in order to increase quality, arguments that are, are still definitely true today. Um So I I did about 10 10 years on and off of of that. I um, ended up working with a lot of state legislatures um, through ALEC. I I headed up the Education and Workforce Task Force uh, at ALEC, and that's the American Legislative Exchange Council. Essentially, it's a um, umbrella organization under which legislators can gather, share ideas, share model policy or ideas for potential legislation. with each other. So, uh I worked on the ed side of that, testified in a lot of, you know, uh hearings all across the the states. I've been to a lot of state capitals, which has been a really interesting experience, really get to see because oftentimes state capitals are not the the biggest or most uh, well-known city from a state. So, oftentimes there are these small kind of out of the way places, so uh within a state. So, I I, I really enjoyed that. Um but but did that kind of advocacy work for quite some time. Came over to the Independent Women's Forum four years ago. Um, it's a great place, I have such great colleagues here. And then I've had the opportunity to work with with Ginny um, as I've kind of maybe branched out uh, into subjects other than education, um, have had the, the amazing opportunity to work with Ginny and, and um, on some of the issues that remain, I think, of central importance to the future of this country, which is you know, how and what are the next generation of Americans learning.
0: Well, and as I appreciate that you, um, still talk about education and, and school choice and, uh, what's being taught in the, in the classrooms as you do branch out. Again, High Noon is my favorite podcast. I'm so, um, proud of all that you're doing out there with your, um, podcast and, and media commentary. I think that you're a very important voice on a wide variety of issues, but, um, I do think that your voice is very much needed in the education space as well, in part because, um, Although you very well could say I told you so, <laughs> you're not saying that. Um but you were aware of of issues uh long before a lot of even parents woke up to what was going on in the classroom. And so l- let's talk a little bit about um what you knew was happening with um with classroom instruction with the prioritization of indoctrination over over education. Uh, a lot of parents look over their kids' shoulders um when schools were closed and there was a so called Zoom school happening, and we're shocked to find uh, the, the CRT, the critical race theory inspired lessons. Um, they've continued to look over their shoulders in, in various ways and have been shocked to find uh, the prioritization of lessons about identity, gender identity, um, and, and all of this content pushed on ever younger children. Um, were you shocked?
1: No, um, I, I wasn't shocked. Unfortunately, um, one of the arguments that's always uh, kind of rung hollow to me is the idea that this all started, you know, a couple years ago, um, or to, you know, maximum we go all the way back to some some dark age like 2015. Um, but that that has always not rung true to me. I think there's actually very little difference between the left even of the late 1960s in terms of a lot of these cultural issues uh, and the left of today, I think that the major difference is how much power they've been seated in these institutions. Whereas, you know, 20 years ago, that power was definitely modulated. They were definitely, even though a lot of these institutions were already liberal or they were already left leaning, um, the, the kind of radical left still occupied a fringe position in most of these institutions and did not have the power say to set curriculum. Um, now we've seen that that's changed, but I think that's largely a matter of, again, of, of increasing power rather than a change of heart or radicalization, right? Um, but, but yeah, I, I, this has not been unpredictable to me. Um, I, I think that a lot of parents, in, in some ways, while, of course, I would never... Um, want to say that that the horrendous experience that so many families and and students had uh, over over the two years of the pandemic um, would never, you know, sort of wish that on anyone. Mm -hmm. I do think that it had a silver lining of actually, as you say, you know, basically beaming the material that was already being taught in schools directly into parents' homes. And for the first time, a lot of parents were actually getting an unadulterated look at what their kids were learning, especially in subjects like social studies. Right. Um, and I think they were shocked. I think they were rightly shocked. Uh, but I, I hope that shock and in, in, in has so far. And I hope it continues to galvanize uh, parents and, and community members and everybody who has a stake in the American future, into into real action, but I think has to be uh, systemic to borrow the left's, uh, you know, favorite word. I, I don't think that it's a matter of sort of playing whack-a-mole with this bad book or that, you know, sort of bad idea in the schools when it's very clear that this ideology is something that has permeated the schools from the bottom up Um and the top-down both, that that district offices are are steeped in this, that teacher training programs, certification programs are nearly all steeped in this ideology, that large parts of the curriculum, as well as the textbook materials that are available for purchase are steeped in this ideology, right? Um, and, and so I think it's really a matter of taking on an entire system. Um, and I think that in order to do that, parents and families are going to need systemic tools.
0: Well, in addition to the the critical race theory inspired lessons, the gender identity focus, um, there's, of course, the environmental alarmism that happens too. And I feel like uh, there's a, a clip going around of, I believe, uh, an elected official saying that her children or her child had woken up screaming from a nightmare about climate change. Um, and people are kind of mocking that that happened, um, but again, having looked over my children's shoulder during school closures, I saw how many reading assignments were about climate alarmism, environmental alarmism, that it's a steady drumbeat of materials um, that gets pulled into all different kinds of, of of classes. Their reading assignment is about, you know, the, the numerous uh, animals that are going and species that are going extinct. Um, and it's it does impact the way, the, the way kids feel and, and, and think. So, um, so parents are now awake to these issues. I'd say, um, another thing that they've woken up to is the, the lack, uh, the poor quality of academic instruction. So when the NAEP scores, the nation's report card has revealed historic drops in reading and math scores for fourth and eighth graders, parents probably aren't that surprised because when kids came home, they realized, oh, My kid doesn't know how to read very well and they certainly don't know how to write. And oh my gosh, they don't even really know how to hold a pencil because they're on devices all day. Um, and and so this uh, poor academic instruction is definitely something that has been uh, revealed, and uh, the, the fact that reading instruction was captured by certain entities that uh, encouraged kids to guess rather than to break down words and learn learn um, actual phonics and um, building blocks of reading that certainly has been been revealed. So what's to do? That's a really long list of things that have gone wrong. Um, not to mention the fact that parents had to fight. So so hard just to get schools open again due to COVID era policies um, and had to fight so hard to get uh, masks off of kids and teachers. Um, we know that parents went before their school board meetings and and spoke up and that's still happening. And that's admirable. What else should parents be doing?
1: Yeah, I, I, a lot of the way I've thought about this has been about changing the power dynamics of um, those those confrontations that are increasingly happening between families and whether there's a school board, school district, principal, teacher, you know, administrator at any level, fundamentally, we've let the system run um, for for decades and develop a culture uh, based on very real material incentive uh, that that parents' satisfaction just doesn't matter. It's it's not on the priority list, right? Even when you have hundreds or thousands of parents who are um, actively voicing their concerns, those concerns are treated as very, very much secondary and unimportant to, you know, a, a checklist of quote-unquote best practices, right, that sometimes come through school boards, sometimes come from outside activist groups. Um, so this is very much, uh, like, our system is set up in order to allow all of these actors to ignore parent voices, right? Because ultimately at the end of the day, their salaries aren't dependent on whether parents are happy or not with the education that their children are getting. And for so many families, you know, unless they can afford uh, independently to pay twice for schooling, right? Once through taxes and, and another time to independently pay for a private school or homeschool, um, parents are, are trapped there. Um, and, and so, the, the, the connection, this is a very basic, it's not because these people are all terrible people or something like that. It's just a very basic human, uh, you know, aspect of human nature. If, if, if there aren't any actual connections between your incentives to do your job and the dissatisfaction of parents, you know, other things are always going to take priority. You're going to to value um the, the chastisement of some outside group like the Trevor Project, right? Um, more than you're going to value the voices of parents because actually that is built into your teacher um, your teacher trainings, right? That's built into your peer networks. It's built into the way that the district has been sending out memos, right? <laughs> On um, how to deal with this issue or that issue. The entire culture is not set up to respect parent voices. And I think that's why, even though I support virtually everything, I'm, I'm all, all of the above person. I support all of the laws that were passed, for example, around critical race theory um, and, and excluding that from classrooms, particularly things that violate the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, I, I support all of all of the, the sort of specific shore up um, of parental rights surrounding gender ideology. I do think at the end of the day, those things are going to be enormously difficult to enforce unless you have an incentive realignment. And that incentive realignment, to my mind, can only come through universal school choice. And and crucially, I think, especially for middle-class families, actually, because school choice has always been focused on essentially the worst served families by the current system. And there's lots of real reasons why that would be so, right? It makes sense that, you know, kids in in schools that are really, really struggling even with most basic academics Um, would would benefit the most from potentially being able to leave those schools. But I think for middle-class families who are otherwise happy um, with the schools they're attending, critically, school choice is going to provide them with leverage in those meetings. It's going to provide them with a kind of control and just a very different meeting, and very different power dynamics in that meeting, right? Imagine if all of those parents who are going now to um, to school board meetings, they're voicing their very strongly held opinions about how objectionable a lot of this content is. Imagine now that each one of those parents uh, has in their pocket a direct line to $14,500, which is pre-COVID additional expense, the average per-pupil expenditure in the country. In many places, it's much higher, right? In, you know, D.C. and New York City, it's approaching $30,000 per student, right? Um, But imagine if each one of those parents has the ability to dock the school's bottom line by thousands of dollars, right? And when you put them all together in the room, that's now, all of a sudden, that represents millions of dollars of the next school budget, right, marching out of the door. It's a very, very different meeting. And the outcomes of those meetings will consistently be different. And I have more hope in the long term for that kind of approach than I do this sort of individual content restrictions, even though I support those kinds of laws, and I don't have the objections that many others do. I think even Christopher Ruffo uh, recently has admitted that, in fact, the, the larger value of, of passing those critical race theory laws was actually to focus the national conversation mm-hmm. and to let parents know what was happening more than actually um, g- getting all critical theory out of schools. Because as it turns out, that's a really, really difficult task if you don't have a carrot and you don't have a stick.
0: Right. And you don't have an ability to monitor it anyway. Let's, let's be honest. Uh, when, when we know that teachers basically often um put together their lesson plans all on their own. It doesn't matter what curriculum the that the that the district is buying. It doesn't matter what state standards the the state is is passing. Um, on a day-to-day level for the student, they're going to be receiving what the teacher is is introducing them to. And so uh teachers have been very clear that they they don't Many teachers have been very clear that they don't have any intention of of, of adhering to the uh, curriculum restrictions that might come from a CRT ban or even a, um, a what they called a "don't say gay" uh, legislation in Florida, which in, in instructed K to three teachers to avoid instruction on um, sexual and gender identities for for young children. The teachers in Florida said. Many of the teachers in Florida have said, nope, I'm not going to, I'm not going to obey that. So monitoring and and enforcement of that is, is very difficult. But the individual parent is going to know if their child comes home and is, is talking about these, these concepts. And the individual parent can go to the school board and have a two more, two minute speech. But like you said, they're not, the district's not going to do anything about that two minute speech unless they know that that parent can then take their per pupil funding and walk away. So what is the mechanism? that parents would need to have to, to be able to 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 walk away with their meca- with with that funding. In the past, you and I as we were talking about school choice proposals, likely we're talking about more narrowly focused uh options like uh bills for students with disabilities um or yeah. or uh even education savings accounts that were that were narrowly focused to specific populations. But this year Arizona has done something that has changed that conversation. So let's talk about the the future of, of education freedom and, and what proposals um, we might be supportive of or hope that parents might be aware of. What are your thoughts on, on Arizona's education savings account or what they call it an empowerment scholarship account at this point?
1: Yeah, before we get to ESAs um, and the necessity of universality, I think, um, I, I do want to just make one note that That kind of of disconnection from parent satisfaction, from, you know, what parents care about, that's like a muscle that's atrophied in the system, right? Um, It's not just like you you can sort of flip a switch one day and and these things will come on. But over time, because there has not been choice within our system, it has allowed uh, a, a sort of bureaucratic, technocratic mentality to grow up around the vocation of teaching. Right. Um, Even if you go back 30, 50 years, you do find this much stronger uh, cultural sense that parents are responsible ultimately for their children's education. And they might be, you know, hiring essentially a teacher or even working in a collaborative way with a teacher or an education provider to provide those that that instruction that they themselves either don't have the expertise or time to do but there was this very like deep cultural sense that no like parents are responsible for their children's upbringing right mm-hmm. and education is an extension of that what we've seen over time and you know you can date this back to you know Woodrow Wilson in the progressive era but is the professionalization of teaching and now i think logically has led to that that mentality that actually parents are incompetent to direct the instruction of their children. And we saw that in the, you know, in the Virginia race, right? Um, We've seen Democrats come out and say, basically, parents are too dumb uh, to direct the upbringing of their children. Parents have no right. They're not experts uh, in in educational instruction. Therefore, right, um, the experts know what's best for your child and not you. Um, I think that mentality is actually of a piece of, and it can only really grow up in a system where parent voices are marginalized by the very design of the system. Right. Um, and so I, I think that's like an important sort of 10,000 foot thing to bear in mind that over time we will rebuild these atrophied muscles where parents actually are full participants, um, in, in hopefully a collaborative way, because the system where that actually does value parent input, um, over time, Will, will breed a culture where parents are more collaborative with teachers and, and um, there is more of a participatory environment. Um, and, and the expectation is for parents that their voices are heard and valued and in fact, uh, reached out for within the system, right? So mm. I, I think that's a really important sort of 10,000 foot backdrop. In terms of the specific policy, there's been an enormous step forward with education savings accounts, empowerment, you know, accounts, whatever, every state has a different name for them. But the essential difference here is that you can actually um, allocate individual dollars, individual providers. Previously, we had uh, worked more or less on a voucher system for the the school choice programs that were already in effect, which meant that parents get kind of a lump voucher and they can take it to a private school. And that was an improvement on the public school system. But there are issues with um, being able, you know, there's no incentive, for example, to price shop. Right. And in some states, they explicitly uh, said you can't add your own money on top of the voucher as well, which is a really bad regulatory decision. Um, so that that tends to um, both limit the number of schools that that will be involved in the program and be open to the program. And two, um, you know, you can't assemble a customized education that way. You can just take your voucher to a private school and now you have more options in terms of where your money's going. And the money is following the student in that way, but you can't break it up or customize it, or or say, you know, get a tutor for mathematics, but send your kid to, um, you know, a liberal arts, uh, you know, high school that has a focus, for example, on music, right? You can't do that kind of customization. Um, so ESAs themselves were, were a great step forward uh, in in that regard. So you just get. A bank account, right? Um, digitally, and, and you can use that money in any number of any number of providers. Uh, and, and the good states like Arizona have been very hands off as to uh, beyond just fraud, right? You can't take that money to like Target and buy a TV, but um, you can use it in a wide variety of educational providers. And the state isn't coming in and saying, especially on ideolo- ideological grounds, saying like this is appropriate, this isn't. So Arizona's done a really good job of keeping those regulations off of their esa program and i think that's part of the reason it's been so successful Um, but i I, i'd like to close i know i've been going on a a bit long on this one but um i'd like to close with the importance of universality Um, and actually this is something that i was a big proponent of at alec um like in some small way to take credit for really making it sort of um normative to at least for our opening offer to always be universal um, rather than targeting either special needs, um, students with special needs or low income students or students in a failing school. Right. Um, that there are all these sort of bite piecemeal programs. Um, and that was that was considered the better political way forward. I, I think, one, you're politically shooting yourself in the foot because you're tying a program um, to those who are often least able to advocate for themselves in state legislatures right? So if you're tying the program to, say, let's say, people or families who earn under $40,000 a year, um, that means that in order to keep the program and make sure that it's funded every year and make sure that it perpetuates and grows, you need those families uh, who are already strapped for all kinds of resources, both financial and cultural, uh, to show up every time and advocate for the program in the state legislature. That's an enormously sort of difficult thing to maintain. But more importantly, I I think... um, it's incredibly important not to forget about the middle class. You don't need to be financially struggling to not be able to pay, let's say, $15,000 per student, which would be uh, to send three kids to high school. And if you really object to the curriculum in your in your public school, and you wanna send your kids, say, to the Catholic school down the road, because you think that those values better match with, match with your own and what you're trying to teach them at home about what the good is, um, that's that's a heavy lift for you know a lot of a wide swath of families right forty five thousand dollars a year is not a small amount of money for basically everyone except the ultra wealthy um, and the idea that that middle class families or even upper middle class families can't uh, need can't, can't or, or don't need this kind of help um, I think is is just really fundamentally wrong and furthermore from the political perspective right. I, the, the American middle class, I think, has been the source of essentially pushback against woke ideology for the most part, right? Um, it has been the working and middle classes who have been pushed back. The elite institutions, whether they're public or private, have been overwhelmingly captured uh, by this ideology, right? And and so if you are um, you know leaving a large part of the middle class out of the fight, I think you're leaving out the people who are most likely to succeed in that fight. So, for all of those reasons, for the political, for the practical, for the, the policy design, I think universality should always be our opening bid. We now have two states, um, West Virginia being the other one uh, that that have succeeded. There's a third state, Nevada, but as you know, that program has been essentially smacked down by the courts and never refunded. Uh, but they technically have a universal ESA on the books. Um, but I hope to see more states go down that direction because I think that universality component is incredibly important.
0: Absolutely. Well, we've got state legislative sessions coming up. There will be bills considered in states, including Iowa, Texas, Idaho. There's a good possibility that something big could happen in um, in the education freedom o- arena in these upcoming legislative sessions. So we hope that listeners will um, stay tuned um, to this podcast and to those discussions to to find out what's happening and how they can be supportive because legislators need to hear from parents, right? Like, again, You can't just stop at giving your two-minute speech at the school board and send a few emails. We know from the last three years that that only gets parents so far. Some parents took the additional step of running for school board, and I so admire them. That's extremely difficult uh, to to take on the responsibility of running a campaign and then serving on school board. But that's going to be slow going to turn things around at the school board level. What parents can be doing going forward, um, into these upcoming months where a lot will be happening at the, at the state capitals is to, to speak up and engage in these discussions around education freedom. So thank you, Inez, um, so much for, for joining us today. You can find Inez's work on IWF.org and our uh, shared education freedom center's work at IWF dot org slash EFC. Um, appreciate the opportunity to, to talk with Inez to today and, uh, and to speak with, um, Uh, all of you, as we encourage, inform, and inspire families who are seeking educational options for their children. If you'd like to respond or ask a question about what you heard today, please email me at virginia.gentles at iwf.org. And if you've enjoyed this conversation, uh, we hope that you will um, stay tuned for future conversations about putting students over systems. Thank you for listening and for creating and celebrating education freedom in your community.